worship team. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi. I'm one of the elders here, and today I'm going to be reading scripture. We'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. This can be found on page 1639 in your pew Bible. So John chapter 13, starting from verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everyone. <clears throat> These first four weeks of January, we're doing a series um, that we call Spirituality Series, and this one this year is on the love of God. And last week, I said that one of the dirty little secrets for a lot of Christians about the love of God is that when we talk about the love of God, it doesn't really do anything for us. We, we basically feel nothing. And that There's a reason for that, because feeling something, like having some real deep emotional connection to the love of God, isn't something that like mystically descends when we say that we believe in Jesus. It's something like all feeling that's built over time through a bond that you have, through experience or a growing imagination. Like that's how people feel everything. And so in order for us to really feel something in relationship to the love of God, there's a process of like figuring out who we really are, figuring out who God really is, And figuring out what's really transpired between us already, what's going on right now, and what's going to go on. In that realm of things, what has gone on, is going on, is going on, could all be put under the auspices of the concept of redemption, which could all be put under the auspices of love. It's my contention, what I'm going to try to say today is that in our culture, in this present moment, we so desperately misunderstand the concept of love that we are easily persuaded that hate is love, and that love is hate. 
And that the result of that is that it's very easy for us to receive the love of God and because of our misunderstandings about what love is, think it's hatred and not good love. To hate ourselves rather than love ourselves, as we're called to do, and to act in ways that are detrimental to our neighbors instead of loving, and to really be confused about the whole lot of it. And if God is love, like it says in 1 John, that the, one of the organizing principles of God's full character is that he is holy love, then arguably all of reality and how we interact with it is organized by what love really is. And if we have misconceptions about love, or if we don't get what love really is, we are in a world of hurt because we don't, ha- we don't know how to re- really re- relate to basically everything we relate to, which, you know, could be seen as problematic. In this passage in John 13, um, it's the beginning of the end of John's gospel, which is kind of odd because John has more than 20 chapters. But one way to think of the gospels is that they are passion narratives, crucifixion narratives with extended introductions. And so chapter 13 is already the beginning of the end. It says in the first part of the chapter here, the first couple of verses, that Jesus—it's it's right before the Passover feast. It's right before what we call the Last Supper. He, um, he knows that this is going to be their last time together before suffering. He's lo- it says he's loved his own who were in the world, which, is, which means all the people that believed in him who were his followers. He had shown them all kinds of love over the course of his ministry, right? And then it says this really kind of odd phrase. In the the NIV translation that we use in our pews, it says, and then he loved them to the end. Right? That's what it says. Which is a bit of an odd translation because he doesn't die in this passage. But this this phrase is meant to to introduce what really is going on in chapter 13. It's the—it's like the thesis of chapter 13. What's going to happen here in chapter 13 is Jesus is going to show his disciples his love. Right? Now— Translation is always treason. It's always hard to figure out exactly how to translate something. In the original language that this is translated from, it literally says, into perfection, he loved them. Okay? Which is a hard thing to translate. How do you translate that? Right? Into is not controversial. He loved is not particularly controversial. It's a generic word for love. Them is a perfectly generic word. So the, the controversial word is perfection or teleos, which in the Semitic language is meant something like Perfection, maturity, and completion. And in its most general sense, it's supposed to mean kind of all these at the same time, which doesn't sound reasonable, but in, in the Semitic mindset, perfection isn't the greatest possible thing that can possibly be imagined, okay? So like a guy might think that the greatest possible woman is a Victoria's Secret model, okay? That's not the Hebrew sense. The Hebrew sense is that if you look at a two-year-old girl, when she's 25, she'll be perfect. It's fullness, not greatest possible imagination, right? That's what it means. Perfect means full, complete, right? Which is the final meaning, which means mature, right? It is actually one general idea. That is, Jesus is—it is into fullness. He is loving his own, right? Okay, that's still a little weird because— Christianly speaking, we would generally think that in the, his crucifixion is when he most fully loves his own. Like, if he's going to show—the old translation entity was he showed the full extent of his love. But the full extent of his love he showed in his death and resurrection, right? 
In what way does he do it now? I mean, there's, there's kind of a big difference between washing people's feet and being crucified. Like, if you had a choice, this would not be a hard choice, right? So, but what if it means this? What if it means pedagogically, in terms of his teaching? This is the moment where he tries to clarify with the most fullness possible what he really means by love. I mean, I think that's clearly what it means. Uh, people often say that Jesus didn't preach really analytical kind of sermons. He used a lot of stories and object lessons and stuff like that. And that's true. But it's actually exceedingly rare that Jesus is himself the object lesson in most of his teachings. And in this one, he does the object lesson physically first and then explains it after. Partly because he wants them to be confused by it. Confusion is a good part of teaching. It's actually helpful to confuse people before you clear something up sometimes. And so he literally says to Peter, you're not going to understand this till it's over. And when he starts to explain what it means, he says, listen, you may not understand this, but let me explain it to you. After he does it, he could have just been like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to weird you out, okay? He doesn't. He does it first in order to make them uncomfortable, right? So that it will make an impression. But one of the things to notice about this is not just the fact— so the general point is Jesus wants them to see that though he has received all power, the verse before it says, the one who's received all power makes himself the lowest servant and washes their feet. And he's like, that's what I did. You're not better than me. That's what you're going to be like, right? That's a good general point. That's not the point I want to focus on this morning. One of the more interesting points of this passage is when Peter argues with him. Right. So Jesus is going along washing his disciples' feet. He gets to Peter, and they have three interchanges, and they're all very important if you're going to understand what love is. Because remember, this moment is where Jesus is giving his clearest, fullest teaching on the fundamental nature of what love is. Okay? So here's the interaction. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Because that's kind of inconceivable, right? And then Jesus says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Okay, so first fundamental idea about love, according to Jesus in this thing is, you're not going to understand how God is loving you when he's doing it for the most part. You're going to understand later. Okay? If you think you have to understand what God is doing in order to accept that what he is doing is loving towards you, you don't, you don't understand. You're pre-foot-washing Peter. I mean, you're just—you've got, you've got something to miss, right? So then, so then Peter says— Okay, so Jesus has literally just told him he doesn't understand, right? And so what does he respond? No, you don't understand, right? Because he says, you're never going to wash my feet, right? At which point, and, and don't let this be lost on you, Peter is basically Jesus' best friend. Now I realize they have a complicated friendship because Jesus is the God-man. But, but Peter is the lead of his—the head of his disciples, his, his closest confidant. He's going to be the leader of the new Jesus movement. And like, a few days, he's going to, like, be the leader of the church, and if, uh, like, 40 days later, he's going to, like, blow up Israel. Like, I, like it's—he's it's, an important factor. But at this moment, do you know what he says? When Peter's like, you can—you'll never going to wash my feet. Jesus gives him an absolute, then you can get out. 100% ultimatum. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Make no mistake what that, that is. 
They're about to sit down for Passover together, the most sacred Jewish feast, the most intimate intermale moment in the Jewish religion, his last supper. And he's like, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can get out. Which should tip us off to the idea that we don't get to tell God how to love us. And then the last part, he says, Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Right? Which which is kind of like, it's kind of the reason it's hard not to like Peter. Because he's just like, okay, if not that, then this. Like, this is great. Okay, like, I'll take off my pants. Like, you can wash my whole body. It'll be great. I am totally in this. And and Jesus is like, no, stop. (laughs) Will you stop? Love is delivering to the other what they need. Okay? That's what love requires. Delivering to the other what they need and descending as low as you need to descend from all of your power and prestige and control of your own life in order to give them what they need. What was necessary at that moment was they needed a slave to wash the feet of these men who had been in dusty roads all day because they're about to lay down at a meal. They don't sit at chairs, right? This is an ancient Semitic meal. They're all laying down. Their feet are all close to each other while they're eating, okay? It's good to wash the feet, right? And that needs to happen. And that's all that needs to happen. And she's like, look, you don't need your hands. Like, think about this. Jesus could have been a little flexible, right? I mean, he could have said, all right, put your hands in here. We'll wash your hands too. I mean, surely there was some dirt on Peter's hands. But I, I want you to notice in all three exchanges about love, how absolutely and completely unflexible Jesus is. There is zero flexibility to the content of his loving actions. And a hundred percent flexibility in his prestige and position and rights in his loving action. That is the fullness of love. That is the absolute teaching clarity of what love is. That is the misconception we have to clear up. You could say it something like this. God will pay any price for love, but he will pay nothing at love's expense. Or you could say it like this. God will not, maybe cannot, destroy love's integrity to love us. And he doesn't even want to. I want to go at this um, in, in three ways this morning. The first, I want to look at one of our major misconceptions about love and see if we can kind of clear it up and see if that loosens up some of the ways we can get bogged down in in having a misconception about God's love. The second is I want to, I want to tell you a way to take those two concepts and and to kind of merge them in a way to conceptualize what it means to understand what love is. And then last, I want to, I want to answer the question, why does it have to be this way? Why can't it be easier than this? Okay. So first, if we're going to feel like we can feel, if we're going to enjoy God's love and live the love of Christ out in our lives, we're going to have to face our misconceptions about love, okay? So let's, let's just look at one of them um, and see, see where we can get here, okay? So I want you to raise your hand if you have ever had anyone say to you or you have said to anyone, God's love is unconditional. So raise your hands if anybody's ever said that to you or if you've said that to anyone. God's love is unconditional, okay? The people who didn't raise their hand aren't playing, all right? Uh, I mean, you could hardly imagine anybody walking through life. I mean, if you went out to the isthmus and found, like, people who are already drunk, okay, and you asked them, what's one thing you can tell me about God or God's love? They would be like, God's love's unconditional, 
right? That, that, that's what everybody assumes, okay? So let me, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, attacking that is like attacking puppies or like cherry cobbler, Alamoda, Wisconsin, right? But let me ask you this. Think about, if you've read the Bible, right? Think about all of the passages of the Bible you've ever read in your life, okay? Every single one. And think about if you've ever read in any of them that phrase, that God's love is unconditional or the unconditional love of God or any place in the Bible in any translation where that phrase is used in relationship to God. See, how many times does that happen? How many times does that happen? You know what the answer to that is? Zero. Not once. That might be intentional. Right? Now, there is another phrase— that is used dozens of times. I think in the NIV 82, the, the translation I was studying this out of when I did it a year ago, I want to say it was over 100, but it was dozens, okay? There is a two-word phrase that is consistently used to refer to the nature and character of God's love. You know what it is? His unfailing love. His unfailing love, okay? Now that may sound a little bit similar, It's not similar, okay? Now, the reason it's not similar is because the statement, God's love is unconditional, is ambiguous. It doesn't mean one thing. It can mean at least two things, and they are two things that are very, 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 very different. And because it's ambiguous, that's not the only problem. Because it's ambiguous, it's used with what logicians call equivocation. Now, hang with me, okay? I know you're starting to shut off already. Just hang with me for a second. Equivocation is the logical fallacy where you use multiple meanings to make a point that can't be made very well, okay? So for example, one of the things unconditional love can mean is unqualified approval, okay? Because, right, if if you say like, well, I'm this way, I feel like you should approve of me, and if you don't approve of me, you're putting a condition on your love for me, which means you don't have unconditional love. And so if you put any kind of qualification on whether or not you'll affirm me in this thing I want to do, or this way that I behave, then you're not loving because you don't—you're not actually participating in unconditional love, right? And that is one thing unconditional love could mean, right? It just—now, as a side note, it never means that in the Bible, partly because it never shows up in the Bible, right? Now, the other thing unconditional love could mean would be unfailing sacrifice, that a love that never quits— that there is no functional condition, there's no barrier to an action of true love that the quality of love won't overcome. There's—it's the—it's a no-quitting love, okay? And you can define it something like this. I'll serve your true true good, and I will never quit. Okay, now, you see, equivocation happens when—you see, this definition only works a little bit of the time, but it's the definition we all want in our back pocket, Okay? And when I say we all, I don't mean non-Christians, okay? Most non-Christians play this game, and most Christians play this game, which is this. When I want love to mean unconditional or unqualified approval, I'm going to use it to mean that. But if you call me on it, I'm going to switch the meaning to unfailing sacrifice, 
Because the unfailing sacrifice definition is really robust, and everybody knows that that's meaningful and deep, and that's what love means. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to sneak in the other definition when I need it. And I'm going to let you use it whenever you want to, as long as you let me use it whenever I want to. Right? Now, that's one of the reasons why I don't think Christians should say God's love is unconditional. I mean, if it ekes out sometimes, fine. But listen, unfailing sacrifice is way better than unqualified approval. And whenever you say God's love is unconditional, you are saying either of those things. And you're not specifying which. And I guarantee you the way people in our culture hear it, they're hearing that. And you might be deceiving them. And you might be deceiving yourself, which isn't loving. Let me, let me tell you a story about this. No, we don't have time for that story. Think about the cross. Which is the cross? It's not hard. Right? The, the fact that Jesus went to the cross is a declaration that that was necessary. Because everything people has—everything that has ever been done in the world is consequential. That is, it matters— and because it matters, it has consequences. It's consequential. Therefore, something needs to be done about those consequences. And God has done that in the cross. Right? And his sacrifice, his willingness to go as far as necessary to do it was absolutely unfailing. God's love is unfailing sacrifice. It's not unqualified approval. Okay, let's look at a way to conceptualize this. Everybody wants to believe that they have beliefs and that those beliefs are right. I'm just like that, okay? However, there are a lot of things that are a lot, more, a lot more complicated than we wish they were. And the best we can do is kind of conceptualize something that's clear enough so that we can use the thought to make decisions in our lives. Now, it is decently unlikely that a lot of our thoughts about God are absolutely analytically true exactly as we think them. That if we explained it to God, God was like sitting on that speaker and I was like, let me tell you what I think love is like. That when I got done explaining it, God would be like, that's exactly what I think. Without remainder, everything I think about love and nothing I don't was in that definition you gave. It's probably not what's going to happen, right? If I was like, this is what I think you're like, and this is what I think love is, he'd probably be like, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. You're onto some good stuff there. But let's just—that's probably what would happen, right? Because I'm thinking in analogy. I'm conceptualizing God. Now, you—now some people be like, and so you can't do that, so you never should, because God's ineffable. No. No. God has intended to speak and show himself. He has spoken and shown himself in Jesus Christ, in his written revelation, in the work of creation, and in what Francis Schaeffer called the mannishness of man, or the humanity of humans. He has done that intentionally. Therefore, it is not pious to be like, well, we shouldn't think about God. No, if God speaks and shows himself, he's demanding that you think about him, right? The question is, how and how well, right? And so over 20 years, I've tried to figure out what God's love is like, and I've thought about it in a certain way, and then over time, I've changed it, and I've changed it, and I've probably changed it again. But what I'm longing for in a culture like ours, knowing what Scripture teaches about the love of God, I'm looking for something that is highly useful— and clarifying for the decisions about love that I need to make, okay? And so this is what I've got so far, and I think it works about 100% of the time. Okay, I'm going to show you it in just a second. One of the ideas that you have to go in with is this verse from 1 Corinthians 13, which is about love. And it says, 
Love keeps no record of wrongs. And then right after that, it says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Okay. So if you conceptualize love as something that can function independent from the truth, you're conceptualizing love wrong. Okay. You can imagine the girl love and the boy truth in like this relationship of delight. They're delighting with each other. They're interested in the same things. They love each other. They're drawn to each other. And love and truth have that relationship with each other. So to conceptualize love apart from truth isn't true and isn't loving. Because remember, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 isn't about truth. It's about love. The point of that chapter is to nail down the definition of love. And while nailing down the definition of love, the apostle says, it rejoices in the truth. Okay? So, here's one way to think about this. Imagine your life being made up of two kinds of things. Okay? One is all of the character traits that the image of God that we bear can grow in. That if we become ourselves to the full level of the being of a divine image bearer, ready for eternity— we would be overflowing with these things. Colloquially, we just call it character, or you could call it virtue. And so I'd call that column virtue or true goods. These are mostly immaterial character traits that are related to our being, the sort of being that we are, okay? And they would be things like that we're truthful, goodness, that we're beauty in the—we have beauty in the holistic sense, not the physical appearance sense— that we have nobility, we're growing in godliness, that we have faith, the right kind of faith, that we're, we have courage and fortitude, that we have prudence, we know to do the right thing in the right situation, we have compassion, all of those kinds of things, right? The fruit of the Spirit, the mind of Christ. In the other column, you have all the things that you can marshal, that you can use, that you can access to do stuff. In stewardship terms, this would be everything that you're entrusted with. Right? And that would be things like your position, your status. So they're not all material things. It's not all money or cars. Some of it is like your position socially and your capacity and like your intelligence and all kinds of things like that. Right? Safety, ease, privacy, control, responsibility, productivity, rest, wealth, life, liberty, etc. Okay? Now, what love is, is the marshalling of the second column for the growth of the first column. That's what it is. It is the use of all of the things in the second column for the growth of the things in the first column. Love is the commitment to the true good of another. The true good of another, biblically speaking and Christianly speaking, is for them to fully be renewed in the image of God that they bear. That is, that the the nature and the person of Christ would be formed in them. What that means is not that you would act just like Jesus, but mediated through your own sexuality and personality and all the idiosyncrasies of your creation, that you would have the character of Jesus. That's what it means to be, for Christ to be formed in you. Like it says in Colossians 3, that you put off the old man or woman, and you put on the new one in Christ. But you're still going to be yourself. You're just going to be a Christ-like version of yourself. Right? So, you can ask the question, are you loving yourself? Well, that depends. Are you utilizing the things in your life in the second column to maximize in your being the things in the first column? 
if you are, and that first column is set by what God has revealed he believes is the true good, i.e. the truth, then the answer is yes. You're loving yourself. If you are letting go of things in the, in the first column so that you can more utilize the things in the second column the way you want to, that is the definition of living by the flesh or sin. It is the degradation of your being in order to treat with idolatry God's gifts or God's assets in your life. It is to live more earthly and more rejection of all the things that are truly good and spiritual and right. What you were made for. Are you loving a friend? Great question. Are you utilizing your second column for their first column? That's all. It's that simple. See, it's, it's hard because it, it's much easier to do the unqualified approval thing. Because you want to give away your second column? We're all far too worldly for that. We don't, we don't want to do that. We want to be able to just say, you're fine. Like, do what you want, and then tell me I can do what I want. But here's the problem. That's actually hatred. That's hatred. Unconditional or unqualified approval, when you understand it in these terms, is an act of hatred. Because what you're doing is you're taking the thing that they must be formed in and telling them to deny it and destroy it in order to have the thing that they're supposed to be utilizing for the former. So you're saying, yeah, you can get rid of this so you can have this. What you're doing. I mean, imagine two teenage boys sitting around talking about whether they can have sex, right? And the 16-year-old says to the 17-year-old, yeah, I mean, I know we're not supposed to do that with chicks and stuff, but like, man, we're like, my hormones are raging. I'm not going to stay celibate till I'm like 25. Like, it's like a decade, man. That's crazy. Like, you know, sure. And then like they, they talk each other into doing whatever they want because, of course, God can't be loving them by demanding their abstinence, right? And so, therefore, they're encouraging each other to pitch this to better enjoy this. That's called idolatry, or worldliness, or fleshliness, or sin, or whatever you want to call it. And worse than that, it is when we say we're loving, actually standing in, in the place of God, as though we are God, being our friend's idol, and telling our friend that we have the ability to tear the fabric of reality apart, and put it back together the way they want it, so that they can do whatever they want which actually isn't true. Right? Imagine a couple of married people sitting together and they're having a couple of drinks and talking. One of them's talking about their marriage and they don't really like what's going on with their career and their wedding. They just don't really like where their life is. They don't see it really getting better. They don't see their spouse becoming more accommodating. They just don't really like their life the way it is. And they're thinking about just starting over, like getting a divorce, maybe going to another city, Things, things, things will probably work out. It's just things are bad now. I'm not happy, right? What should that person do in such a situation, right? Surely they should say, God will forgive you. It's not so bad if you pitch the— th like, right? You can't be expected to be unhappy. So you should do what you need to do. See, that's hatred. We'll call it love. We'll say we're being a good friend. But we're actually calling on that person— to affirm their inclination to destroy their own being. That's what we're doing. Now, why do we do that, right? Well, it could be because just because we're ignorant or because we're confused. But what it also is, is this. How are we supposed to love that person? Are we supposed to say, look, you need to take your second column, and you need to marshal it better to do better in your first column? 
right? That's called religious legalism. That's not right either. You know what love is? Love is when you take your second column and you use it to help them grow in their first column. That's why it's sacrificial. So you're sitting with your friend and their marriage kind of stinks and they hate their kids and they don't like their job and they just want their life to change or end. And you say, listen, when was the last time you spent any time together with your wife? And they're like, well, I mean, I don't remember when, but it's been, it's been a while. I mean, the kids are clearly her priority and she doesn't care about me. Okay, wait, 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 stop. Okay, listen. How about over the next two months, my wife and I put aside three weekends for you and your wife to just go away with each other. We'll take your kids for three days. We'll get Little Caesar's pizza. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we don't violate what's-his-name's nut, nut allergy. Like, we'll, we will take care of business. They might watch more TV than you would normally let them, but they will be fine, okay? And you guys need to go out and spend some time doing the archaeology of digging back up the reason you fell in love with each other. You need to talk. You need to relax. You need to make love. You need to sleep. You need, just, like, do some stuff and see if it's not a little better by Sunday. And we'll do this until you feel like you're turning a corner. Right? Well, there's a lot of examples of that, obviously. But the idea is not what religion, what religion might say, right? A legalism might say, you need to do more, you need to work harder to get better. That's not love. Love is, I will spend my second column to help you grow in your first. That's love. See, once you get this grid in place, Almost every question about loving yourself or loving others or what love is in a culture or sh- how do I love this person or how do we love that person in this situation, it like sorts itself out pretty clearly. In fact, one of the reasons why some people don't like this way of thinking about it is it's just too clear. <laughs> there's, not, there's not a lot of room to hide. You know? And um, problem is I think it's right. It also tells you how to love God. Right? You can't actually increase God's first column, right? So you can spend your second column adoring God's first column, like singing and worship. You're using energy to enjoy and adore and praise and and treat God's first column like it should be treated. But also, you can use your second column to increase the first column in someone else that God loves. And he loves every person. So anytime you use your first column, your second column, to grow the first column in anyone, to build them up, to strengthen them, to help them grow in godliness, to help them choose the right thing, to bear with them in whatever they're struggling with, you are loving God too. Okay, now let's end with this question. Why does it have to be this way? This is, this is a lot harder than we would like it to be. And like, listen, you should have already known. We should have already known love was hard, okay? If what the world needs now is love, sweet love, and if what love is, is just unconditionally affirming people, the world would be full of love. Like, Twitter would be a nice place, right? But here's what we know. Even though a lot of our culture believes in unconditional affirmation as what love is, they only believe that for their tribe, Right? Like, find some fundamentalist Christian that hates gay people and tell them, hey, if you believe in unconditional affirmation, you should unconditionally affirm, like, the flamers in the gay parade in San Francisco. Let's just go and cheer them on. They'll be like, I ain't doing that. They won't like it. And, but if you get an LGBT activist, you'll be like, let's go to, like, Missouri and, like, go to, like, a, like a, some fundamentalist church and, like, you can cheer on and unconditionally affirm the preacher, whatever he says. They'll be like, I don't think so. 
This is, we all know that there's a limit to unconditional affirmation. We all know that. We know it's unworkable. But as long as we can stay within our tribe, we can make it work within our tribe. We can do it for each other, and we can do whatever we want, and we won't be called upon to spend our second column for anybody else's first column, because all they can really demand from us is not our sacrifice and us burning to ashes our own assets for their good, even if they've been irresponsible. All they can really ask from us is for us to affirm them. And we could do that. That's cheap, man. It's like animal crackers by the pound. But one of the things I think is helpful is to recognize that Jesus said solving the problem by, by God just unconditionally affirming everybody was not possible. The actions of life are too consequential for that. You can't just go, you know what, it's fine. Like most, a lot of us wish that that's how God would handle things. He'd just look at all of humanity and just go, look, it's fine. Look, it's fine. Right? That's one of the ways in which Christianity disagrees with every other religion in the world. Right? There's, there's no other religion in the world that believes that God concretely himself bore the penalty for all human wickedness so that there could be peace. Because God argues in many ways in the Bible that if he did that, it would mean that all human wrongs were essentially inconsequential, and that's not possible. He will not buy a loving end for you by destroying love. Love assumes all human actions are consequential. You can't just look at a group of God's children who are basically in a death feud with each other and just go, it's fine, it's fine. That's why we could never respect and we could never love for eternity a God that engaged in unconditional affirmation. You don't want that. You don't want that in a lover. You don't, you don't want a lover who's like, like for you, but not for anything else more important than you. Like imagine a girl like dating some guy who really liked her, but was okay with killing people. Like she's going to end up taking a nap with Lyme, okay? Like she's going to die because at some point he's going to kill her because yeah, he likes her, but he doesn't love anything else important. Because here, here's the thing that we need to recognize. God loves everything worth loving. He loves himself because he is the most lovely thing in existence. And he should love himself. That's not selfish. He also loves every truth. It says in Psalm 33, He loves what is just and good. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. That is, he loves justice and truth and goodness, and he loves those things more than he loves you. His love for you is derivative on all of his other great loves. One of the reasons he loves you is because you're in his image. It's derivative of his right love for his own loveliness. The fact that you bear his image is a huge part of the reason he loves you so much. I mean, think about why parents are so, like, unapologetically favorable towards their own kid when it's entirely inexplicable. Why do they love their own kids so much? Why can't they just love children in general? It's because their children bears their image. Part of the great bond between parents and children is, is that they look upon a child that bears their image, and they look upon a parent that bears their own. And it's within that loveliness and connection that parental and filial love flows. Your, God's love for you is derivative on much more important things that he loves more than you. And if you ask him to choose, he's going to choose those things. That's why Jesus' love feels so inflexible. 
Because he can't burn reality to ashes to fulfill your tastes. One of the most fundamental ideas of understanding God's love is God loves more than just you. He loves you. When we sing, God is madly in love with you, that's true. God is madly in love with you. He loves you with an unfailing love. Now, think about somebody you hate. If you don't think you hate anybody, I want to refer you to the first sermon about knowing yourself, okay? God is just as madly in love with them. Now, think about some of the people that you have very, very deeply wronged in your life. Now, if you don't think you very, very deeply wronged people in your life, I want to refer you back to Sermon 1 about knowing yourself. Now, think about those people. God is just as madly in love with them. And what happened to them at your hand was consequential. It mattered, and it has consequences. And no just God, no one who believes in truth, can just wave his hands and be like, it's okay, it's okay. It's, it's not. It's not unless something consequential happens with the consequences of those actions. Because God loves more than just you. He loves truths that are bigger than you. He loves himself rightly more than you. And he loves other people as much as you. Imagine for a minute that you were a surgeon and we had created the opportunity to weave back together severed spinal cords so that quadriplegics could move again. Think about how complicated you would think that would be and how complicated it probably is, being that we haven't done it yet. That is about as complicated as building a sandcastle in relation to the complexity to the eternity that God is weaving together at this moment. You imagine what it would be like to take every true and proper value, every true and good thing, every perfect imagination, every being that has borne his image that, image that has ever existed, every good woven together for a perfect eternity of shalom, which includes both justice, peace, and delight forever in the presence of God, all things in harmony with one another. And you ask yourself, if one cell in that program gets to veto all of it because of some of their little desires, and that they think that the fundamental concept that unites it all, which is love, ought to serve their interests. It's not going to go. The only way you can be eternally woven into the fabric of shalom forever, in all of its delight, in all of its peace, and in all of its justice, is if there is one principle that you don't demand serve you, but that you serve it. One principle that is the uniting function of everything that will ever be united. One thing that can make the infinitely complex unity of all those things work in its weaving. And that thing, according to God, is love. And that's why it's not flexible. That's why Jesus can look his best friend in the eye and say, if you don't want me to love you the way I have to love you, you can leave. That's why Jesus can speak about things like damnation and eternal separation from all that he's trying to create. 
And that's why Jesus can try to draw us with unblushing promises of his unending love for us, and why his statement about his dramatic love for us is not in contradiction to his threats about if, whether or not we will submit to love. They're in union with each other. The train of love is going forward. It must, and it must go forward the way it's going to, and it's going to do it with or without you. And he wants it to go forward with you. And if you're, if you're like, I don't think I can make it, that's not a problem, because his love is unfailing. He will find you. He will get you. He will travel the universe to get you. There's, there's, no, there's no structure. There's no wall. There's no difficulty that he won't overcome. For anybody who wants to come, who wants to be in, who wants to be overcome, even if you're like, I don't think I could ever be godly, you just have to not quit. You just have to say, yes, I'm wrong, and want to be carried in by him, and he will get you by the shirt, and he will get you in the car. Like, he will do it. His love is completely unfailing, but his love is not unconditional. If you're like, I don't like the train, and I don't want to go, and I don't like you, there's no solution for that. There's a lot more I'd love to say. There's a bunch I'll say in the next couple of weeks. But I believe that if we can get straight in our hearts and mind what the love of God means, what love is really like, It will change our lives in some of the most profound ways we've ever imagined. In many ways we've never imagined. You will grow in loving and feeling loved by God in ways you've never imagined. The levels of emotion that you will experience of believing that God loves you. What's happening in your life, you won't see it as hatred. You'll realize that you won't understand some of the things he does till after. You won't be so angry about the inflexibility of God's love. And you will be open to the truth of what God is doing in your life. You will, you will have the capacity to feel about God ways you've never felt. You will be forced to face things about yourself that are destroying you in ways that will free you and strengthen you and re— God will use to reform you and remake you in his image in the fullness of Christ by his Spirit. You will become a person of strength and dignity and virtue that you have not yet imagined as possible. You'll be able to stand the withering criticism of the world without hatred, without scorn, and be able to ask yourself, what is my loving response to this? And you'll know, and you can do it. You'll know how to love yourself. You'll know how to love your neighbor. You'll know how to love the world. You'll know how to love God. You'll know how to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will be free in ways and at levels you have never imagined. And if love is the organizing principle of reality— you will be reoriented towards everything that exists in a fruitful way with a kind of fullness that you have not yet imagined. And that will start now, and you have no idea the fullness that you will experience in eternity. You'll start to think of that with some wonder and hope that you've not yet conceived. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I like preaching on heavy stuff because there's a lot to say, but I know— um, that, that these things can be hard to listen to. And I pray that in, at this moment that you would fill people with not the dread of the difficulty of what love is or a remembrance of the failures or how we may have misrepresented your love many times. I pray at this moment that you would fill us with a sense of your unqualified forgiveness to anybody who turns to you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. 
And I pray that you would fill our hearts with a recognition that love rejoices in the truth and that we want to rejoice with love and with the truth. And God, we pray that you would help us to be people who know that there is freedom coming, that there is justice coming, that there is joy coming, and there is peace coming as you weave us into your tapestry and character of love. And so all we can say right now, at the best we can, and the limited way we know how, is yes to you. The only thing you can't do for us is consent. So God, would you please strengthen us and encourage us to give you that one requirement, the one condition. Would you help us to have faith in you, to trust you with all our hearts, and to be filled with the transforming power of your love. In Jesus' name.